While we're, um, while we're still talking about uh, kids, I think there's a slide that I forgot to mention, and uh, that is a slide uh, that is a picture of Lillian Decker Guccio. Do we have that somewhere around up there, guys? Is that there this week? So, ooh, we're going to go fast with it all. Wow. There we go. We just want to celebrate uh, all the good things that God has. So just be praying for her. She's got a couple of little issues with her heart. And uh, so just keep praying for healing for her and for her uh, family as well as they celebrate her new life uh, around. So if you see Steve and, and they're not beaming grandparents at all uh, here today. So anyway, there we go. Now you can fast forward all the way back to the uh, scripture reading. So we have finished Galatians. Some of you are going, thank goodness we're done with Galatians. But the theme from Galatians are going to carry us throughout every sermon series that we do here at the church. Because the themes of Galatians were very simple. God said to us, For freedom I have set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't return again to a yoke of slavery. Remain in the grace that has been given to you in Christ and the freedom that's been afforded to us in Christ in the gospel. And that from that, our lives will be impacted and transformed. Hopefully you got a little bit of the redundancy of if Christ has taken up residence in your life, if the Holy Spirit uh, is there ministering, there will be effects in your life. It will be a natural thing for people around you to be able to see Christ. Now, we're not with absolute determination able to say, well, that person's a Christian and that person's not a Christian because there are some people who are Christians who they just they don't see it quite as much. And there are other people who aren't Christians and you see many, many good things. And so what do we need to know? We need to say and believe that in our hearts, what is it that you believe? Has Christ taken up residence there? But in general, what we want to see in our lives is for people around us to go, that person's a Christian. Uh, I joked and have heard people say from time to time, are you a Christian? And the response is, why, yes, can't you tell? And the response is generally, well, no, that's why I asked. And usually what we do at that point is say, well, see, here's what I believe, or here's what I do. I go to church. Uh, I'm a good person. I, I don't get drunk. I pay my taxes. I do these things. And Paul would say to you, you've missed it. The response should be, are you a Christian? Yes, Christ is my Savior. His righteousness is my righteousness. His perfection, mine. I was absolutely lost with no hope of ever being found except in the saved work of Jesus Christ. That you go to the gospel versus going to your works. And then saying, and you'll hope that you see within my life the work of that flowing out. I still imagine that there are a few of you. I'm sure you guys are just been soaking it in and just loving the opportunity to ask somebody near you who loves you. Remember the assignment? Somebody who loves you and is near you in your life to say, where do you see the Spirit working in my life? Some encouraging words. It's always good to have encouraging words. And where do you see areas where the fruit of the Spirit isn't developing? You usually would stop at the first side. Come on, keep telling me. Yeah, that's good. Okay, you see? Okay, good. 
But then we don't want to go to the side of, can you tell me where you don't see it? Well, you're not quite as patient. You've got a pretty quick temper. There's not much self-discipline in your life or control there. There's not a gentleness in you. And so we don't want to go there. But it's only, folks, when you have others speaking into your blindness that you're really going to be able to grow. The story that we're going to begin to engage over the next few weeks is the story, really, of blindness. It's the story of Israel and Judah, God's people, the Jews, who missed it. God had given them a task. He had said, here it is. It's sort of the circle of blessing. He had said, listen, if you continue to follow me, if you continue to claim me as your God, if you continue to do this, I will bless you. Parents, you do realize that the, the end result of your parenting is to establish your children as independent young men and women, free to leave your home and free to establish themselves in the world. We used to think uh, that it, what was the word we said, Lisa, in parenting? We used to think the goal of parenting was what? Compliance. Well, we realize that's not the goal of parenting. The goal of parenting is to to lead our children to Christ. We can't convert them. And then to help them mature so that they go out into independence. And eventually you're going to lead to an an adult-an-adult relationship, right? But what happens, parents, when your children still act like they're 10 when they're 16? What do you have to do? Oh, sorry. We're now back to a parent-child relationship. And you've lost that privilege. Oh, you decided that coming in two hours past curfew was a good idea. Well, I don't think it's a good idea. Let me have the keys. You don't get it. Oh, so you're looking at that on your phone. Well, I don't find that to be a good idea, and that's broken the rules that we've established within our home, so please give me your phone. Let me read your text. Parents, you really should be checking up on that. Just as a side note, now I've lost every teenager going, what a horrible man (laughs) who would tell my parents to do such a thing. But it's establishing... There is blessing. There is blessing in your life, but there are also requirements in the life. That was the case with Israel. So what we're going to do today, and I hope as best I can to keep you engaged, because I'm about to say something that I may lose you. We're going to talk about history. I was a history major. I love talking about history and finding the fascinating events of history and how God has orchestrated all of these things together by his providence to lead and to move over centuries and decades and days and weeks and months and years and all of those things to weave them together for his purposes. That you see, God has an ultimate story and he's the ultimate story writer, not simply the storyteller but the story writer and then our stories engage that. And so the story of Israel is the same way. So we're going to look at uh, Haggai. If you've got uh, your Bibles, good luck. All right? Because then you go, uh, you know, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay? That's right. You should have that really easy right now. All right? You got it? That's a little song I learned when I was that big. And so when I would get examined for Presbyterian with other pastors, I'd have to sort of sing the song in front of them. And it was silly, but I learned it. So there's Haggai. Y'all there? Or are y'all just going to cheat and wait for it to come up there? Uh, but Haggai was a prophet. And a prophet was one who was set apart by God, not because of anything special in them, but it says that the Spirit of God came upon this man, Haggai, whose name meant festival or festive. And he said, basically, Haggai, I have a ministry for you. 
And for Haggai, it was only for a few months. You never hear of him again. The ministry of Haggai, at least scripturally, was only for a short amount of time. And God used him powerfully within that time to be his mouthpiece to the people. And so Haggai comes, and he is uh, ministering. And he says, I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're just going to back up and uh, talk a little bit about it. So this is God's word, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the second year of Darius, the king, that is the king of uh, Assyria, Persia, uh, in, the month, in the sixth month, on the day, first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, normally the way that prophets speak. They don't say, thus says the prophet of God, but thus says the Lord of hosts, speaking to you, speaking God's word. And so they came and said, thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, have never, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages puts, does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the answer. Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all of their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Says God's word, may he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of. Now, many of you would come to that passage and you would go, Jehoshahu and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, and you'd get lost in the names. And then you'd go in the second year of Darius, and you go, what in the world? And you'd think, man, and then there's this God who just seems to be mean because the people are working, and they're bringing home wages, but they're putting them in pockets with holes in them, and they try to clothe themselves to get warm, but they don't get warm, and they're hungry, but they don't get fed. And it's all because God is just upset because his temple hasn't been rebuilt, and he seems like a punitive, mean God. Well, that's missing the entire thing. And so what I'm going to do today is we're going to set the stage for the next few weeks. And we're going to ask a few theme questions and set some ideas because I want you from today for the next several weeks to hear this message over and over. And that is the repetitive message in this first chapter when he says regularly to the people, consider your ways. He says it twice in here. Folks, 
consider your ways. In the Hebrew, it actually says, people, set your heart upon your heart. He basically says, folks, this is a time of inspection and introspection. It's a time for you to look inward and really ask some deep and profound questions about your life. Take a moment to consider these things. And if you need help, considering these things and help interpreting some of the things that are going on in your world, events that are happening in your life, go to other godly people who have considered their own ways and have considered God in the mix of that and ask them to help you interpret what's going on in your world in the end so that you can then hear the Lord's voice and be able to say, ah, this is what God is teaching me. In every situation that you find yourself, you should ask these two questions. We've said this before, and I'll continue to say it. Ask these two questions of every situation in which you find yourself. God, what are you trying to teach me about you? First question. No matter what it is. You just got pulled over for doing 65 and a 45. God, what are you trying to teach me about you in the middle of this situation? And while you're sitting there in purgatory, uh, waiting for the man or woman to show up with your nice ticket and to remind you of the speed limit, you can ask the second question, God, what are you trying to teach me about me in this situation? The kids are going nuts. God, what are you trying to teach me about you in this situation? God, what am I supposed to learn about me in this situation? Does that make sense? But see, it takes a moment to do that because you have to pause, step a little bit outside of that moment and consider your ways. Consider for a moment everything that's going on. But how do most of us respond and react? I just gave you the word. We react. We just react. We just plow on. We just boil through. We dive right into intentions and motives. We go right into interpretation without ever stepping back and going, God, help me see this in the larger picture that it may be in. Now, in order for us to really get a grip on Haggai, you're going to have to step back for a moment and go, God, help me understand everything that was going on. Okay? I'm not going to give you all the exact dates. You can look those up in a good study Bible, which I hope that you have. Uh, There's a very good one, by the way, put out by ESV, the ESV Study Bible. Um, You can get it both in hardback uh, or you can get it online. I use that regularly in my own studies. I find it very helpful. But you go and you study and you can get some of these dates. But basically, here's what was happening. Israel uh, was broken into really two sections, two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, Israel, with ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, Judah, with uh, two tribes. And Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. Now, there was back in uh, 722, Assyria came in and they annihilated the ten northern tribes. They came in and took over the northern kingdom. And what the way that they used to work back then was when a conquering enemy came in, a king came in, he would take all the best and the most wonderful and he would displace them. He would take them out of the countries and he would replace them with other people from other conquered countries. Does that make sense? So he would go over and he'd conquer Turkey and he'd take the Turks and he'd put the Turks in Israel and he'd take the conquered Israelites and he'd stick them in Turkey. Why do you think they would do that? Because it absolutely undermined their structures and undermined their strength and it dispersed them all around. And so that was a tactic that was happening. Well, the southern kingdom didn't get it. 
because they were sitting and going, I wonder why God would allow this horrible pagan king to come in and take over the northern kingdom. And the prophets who were around were going, the reason he did it is because they were disobedient and he was punishing them. They had stepped out of the circle of blessing, if you would, and they're getting a spanking. So southern kingdom, Jerusalem, wake up, repent, Come back to the Lord, worship him, or guess what? Something bad is going to happen to you as well. And that something bad happened to them in the name of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had come in, and he had taken over Assyria, and he had conquered now the northern kingdom, and he came into the southern kingdom. And so the two southern tribes in 586 were taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. And you may remember these stories. Daniel. Remember Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, they were in Jerusalem, and they were sharp young men, the next leadership of the kingdom. And what happened? Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar took them and said, we're sending you to Babylon. We're going to put you there, and we're going to train you to be leaders within our kingdom. Interesting side about Daniel. It says that Daniel was one of Nebuchadnezzar's greatest advisors. Do you know how he got there? It was that he was brought in and he was taught everything that all the pagans would have been taught. He was taught the dark arts. He was taught all the things of astrology. He was taught all of this. But interesting, in the middle of it, he still remained faithful to God. Wow. That's amazing. But it was because he was displaced and he was moved out. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, you people in Jerusalem have been so obstinate that I'm not only going to remove you, I'm going to destroy your cities. And it says that Jerusalem was leveled. The walls were broken down, and the temple, the place of worship where God was with his people, devastated. The beauty of the temple of Solomon, devastated. It says that no stone even set upon a stone. And they said that some of the stones would almost fill uh, this sanctuary from one end to another and be 20 feet tall. That was the size of some of these stones that they had. They were humongous and gigantic. And it says that the Babylonians came in and devastated them out. And so the people were dispersed. And a few of them were left. Well, the few who were left, they were lost, weren't they? Can you imagine? Your national identity is gone. Think of a conquering country coming into our country and doing that. Some of your children are sent away to live uh, in Russia or sent to live in China or sent to live somewhere else. And then other people from other countries are sent here to live. And it's this total mix the people were lost. Because you see, for Israel, worship at the temple in Jerusalem was the central part of their lives. They had lost their due north. They had lost anything that they understood. They'd lost it. Their identity as a people was gone. Why do you think it is today in Israel that there's such a movement? What is it to rebuild? They want to rebuild the temple, interestingly enough, because still within Judaism, the temple marks this important thing. And God said here, it's gone. And he used these pagan kings to do it. And so the people are dispersed, and they're there. Well, something interesting began to happen. Well, back in Ezra, another little historic book that you may or may not have read, Ezra went to the king, and he went to the king in Babylon. Well, Babylon had actually fallen back up. Am I losing you yet? A few of you? Some of you may have an ancient Near Eastern test coming up and you're writing notes. Kids, the rest of you are going, Bill, just move to the great part. Well, this is getting there. We're getting there. Basically, Babylon had fallen. And now Cyrus, uh, Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, was there. And the Persians were horrible. Seen the movie 300? 
Anybody? It's a brutal movie. I'm not expecting you to go see it. But it was uh, Cyrus. The, wasn't it Cyrus who was the king? Xerxes. But he was one of the, the, the kings. And they were brutal people. Brutal people. Conquerors. And they conquered Babylon. And so here comes Ezra, this little Israelite, who's standing there in the presence of these kind of kings. And he went to this powerful pagan king who had conquered the conqueror of his people. And they'd been out of Jerusalem for a while. And in faithfulness, he came to the king and he said, "Um, King, can we go back to Jerusalem and rebuild our city? It's very important for us to have our place of worship so that we don't lose our national identity. Hmm. And the king, in all of his wisdom, said, you know, okay, I'll let you go back. And roughly 43,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem to go back for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple and then eventually rebuilding the walls. You can read about the rebuilding of the walls with Nehemiah. But the rebuilding of the temple comes uh, under Ezra. And it comes in the looking at Haggai. I'm trying to piece together the Bible. So many times you read the Bible and you don't realize how it all pieces together. That these guys uh, lived around the same time and they ministered at the same time. And so Haggai knew Ezra and they knew Zechariah and they were hanging out together. And they were working together. And so they went back and they began this work that was there. And they started the work. But guess what happened? There was this interesting group of people who were still living in the land. They were a few of the people who were Jewish descent, but they had intermarried with all of the pagan groups of people that were around. And so they were called half-bloods, or if you're a Harry Potter fan, they were muggles. They were mixed blood. They, they weren't pure uh, in, their, in their race. And so they came back and they said, hey, we want to help you rebuild the temple. And Ezra and Shealtiel and the leaders of the people said no. There's no place for you here. This is a place for God's people to do God's work. And we're going to establish this. You have abandoned God. And he's no longer, he's one of many gods to you. And you can't come. It would be the height of hypocrisy for you to come and to work on the place, the holy of holies for God. And guess what the people who were in the area said? Oh, that's fine with us. No. They got angry. And they got agitated. And they got punitive. And so they sent a letter back to the king back in Persia. And they said, do you know what these people are doing? Do you know the history of these little Jerusalem people? Do you know what these Jews do? Every time they get together, they cause problems for the conquering kings. And the kings back there were in a little bit of turmoil. And he went, oh, man, that's probably not a good thing. So they better stop their work. And so the work of the temple was begun, but then immediately it stopped. You can find that in Ezra 5 and 6. 4, 5, and 6. And so it stopped. So here you have 43,000 Jews who came back for one express purpose and one purpose only, and it was to do what? Build the temple. And now they can't build the temple because there's opposition. And you wonder, why is the temple so important? The temple was the place where the presence of God manifested itself in a real way. It said it was in the Holy of Holies, that after Abraham, or Isaac, let me get my forefathers right here, sorry. After Moses had come and established what was a tabernacle, it was an elaborate set of tents where they worshipped God. David, King David, wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem, but God said, you don't get to build the temple, David. Too much has gone on in your life. You're a man after my own heart. You get to go to heaven and enjoy all of that, but I've, re- I've withheld some blessing from you. And so you don't get to build the temple, but your son Solomon does. 
And so David did the building campaign. He raised all the millions and millions of dollars that were needed. And his son Solomon built this temple. And it says, the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God, took up residence in the Holy of Holies. And once a year, a priest would go in and minister in the name of the people. And it was a huge celebration, a time of atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atoning. And then there was the Passover festivals and all the different things all centered around the temple. And now that was gone. And they were reestablishing it because they believed that in the reestablishment of the temple, that there would be the reestablishment of God in their lives, the presence of God in their lives, and it was of keen importance. And so they got some opposition. And you know what the people did in the face of that opposition? Well, I guess God didn't really want us to come back here and build the temple. We must have misunderstood him. But now we got all this money, and we have all of these resources, so God wouldn't want us not to ourselves be happy, so they went and they built their own houses. Interesting, in the beginning of Haggai 1, he says, the house of the Lord is in ruins, but you yourselves go live in your paneled houses. The word paneled is used only of the Solomon's temple. He basically said, my house is in ruins, and you're going and building your mansions. You've missed it, folks, is what he's saying. And so the people were there, and they were happy, and they were content. And then all of a sudden, this fellow Haggai shows up on the scene, and he messes with everybody. He comes in, and he says, folks, you've forgotten your purpose in life. You've forgotten the very reason that you exist, and the reason you exist is to have God in the center of your lives and to get about the work of his kingdom and to get back to it. So we're going to come back to it. I'm going to fast forward because we're out of time. And guess what all the people around Jerusalem said? Woohoo! this is awesome. They said, absolutely not, you're not going to do this. Then they petitioned the king back there in Persia. And the king in Persia was also petitioned by the Jews. And the Jews said, but we should be able to do this. And he searched the archives. Very interesting that they had archives back then. He searched the archives and he found the original decree and the edict that allowed him to go back. And he said, guess what? Not only can they build back Jerusalem and the temple, but I'm going to pay for it. And if anybody messes with them, it's an act of war upon me. Oh, wow. And so now this little remnant of 43,000 people gathered together to go build this temple. And God said, I'm with you. Get back to work. So you got the history of it? What are the name of the kings? Where was the year that the northern kingdom was fell? Southern kingdom? See, those things really don't matter. What matters is this is these historic events which can be traced into history itself happened and all orchestrated by God for a purpose. And here's the takeaways that I want you to take away from it today. Takeaways from a history lesson in church. You're amazed by it, I'm sure. And here they are. First, consider your ways. Consider what God has for you. Consider what his plans are what his desires are for your life. Take a moment and pause and look. And then look around. And the answer to it is really simple. Do you want to know what the ultimate purpose of your life is? Do you want to know what the chief end of man is? Anybody know the answer to that question? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If you want to know what God's plan is in your life, it's to glorify him. It's to enjoy him. And so you have to assess and you go, wow, something that I learned from Haggai is, guess what? There's going to be opposition in your life for you to accomplish your ultimate purpose, isn't there? 
Because there's a world around you filled with people who some of them look like church people and some of them look like Christians and others of them are just rank pagan and secular in the world. But they don't like the establishment of God's work in your life because they know that it's going to have an effect on everything around them. And so you may run into some opposition. And there's one enemy who says he really hates the establishment of God's purposes in your life. And that's the evil one who says, I'm going to do everything I can to mess it up. And I'm going to send people to yell at you and say boo to you and get opposition to you. And I'm going to try to get things messed up in your life. And I'm going to do that. And so opposition comes. And so what do you do? Oh, there's opposition. Guess God's purposes are messed up. Or are you to say, okay, God, in the midst of the opposition, how am I to respond to ultimately glorify you and enjoy you forever? And then you can look at this And if you were to mark down the dates that I gave you, do you know how long it was from the time that the people uh, got the idea to go back and the time that the temple was ultimately completed? It was 70 years. 70 years. I'm ready for what I want now. (laughs) I don't like waiting. Do you guys like waiting? How many of you get frustrated in, in a line when you go through the drive-thru and there's three cars in front of you? Like, good gracious. This is ridiculous. I might actually have to get out of my car, be inconvenienced, walk inside. Oh, and there's four people in that line. And this is the express line. Or like me the other day, I joked with you that the person who had 11 items in the 10 and under line at Publix, it's like, folks. And that one 11th item was the one that didn't have the barcode right, and so I had to wait for that, I was very frustrated because of timing. Lisa knows that I don't like being late. I hated being late when I was with her. I hated waiting when things. I would go and sit and out in her parking lot. So I would walk up to her door right at 8 o'clock when I knew there was 8. And if she was at 8.01, I was frustrated because I had to wait. Guess what God's saying with 70 years? It may take a little while for my purposes in your life and my purposes in the life of your children and in your spouse, and in yourself, and in your grandchildren, and in those whom you love, it may take a while for the purposes to ultimately come to fruition. But I promise they'll come to fruition. Are you willing to stay with me for 70 years? Are you willing to recognize that if I took a piece of string, of fishing wire, and put it in that corner, and run it all the way over to that corner, and took a black marker and tapped it, that's the extent of your life in eternity. So is 70 years really that much in light of eternity? So there's some great themes that we're going to look at here. But I want you to begin to prime the pump. Consider your ways. Consider if things are going rough in your life. If things aren't going the way you thought, maybe ask the question instead of saying it's all his fault or her fault and they're messing up all my plans and all of this is going wrong, maybe step back and go, God, what are you trying to teach me in the middle of all of this that will allow me to know myself better, know you more so that I can ultimately get back to the task of being your temple to glorify you and enjoy you most in this life. Does that make sense? That's where we're going. If you know some folks in your world and in your life who need to hear that kind of message of how is it that God works out his purposes in our lives in the midst of opposition, both internal and external opposition, and ultimately leads us to himself and to the great things that he has for us, I hope you invite him over the next few weeks. Because guess what? At the end of this time, we're going to go right into Advent and Christmas time. And what we're going to look at at Christmas time is the beauty of God's ultimate answer to all of our issues, which is Christ himself coming. And we're going to look at it from a cosmic perspective. We're going to look at Christmas from the book of Revelation. 
That's going to be fun. I'm just going to prime the pump for you there a little bit too. It's going to be a cosmic Christmas that we're going to look at together in that way. But it starts with God's purposes in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for history. Thank you for a story that's not just a story for story's sake or so that we can test it out on an AP exam, but it is a story of your working in the lives of real people in real situations that now translate to us real people in real situations that we could look and we could see that, God, do you have a central place in our lives? Is your, your name central to us or are we just sort of in it a little bit? We're distracted and living in our paneled houses, in our paneled worlds, in our paneled lives, while you just sort of sit there. And we'll call you every now and then when we need you, but we really want you to be a good butler or a maid, and we don't want you to be a king. So God, teach us about ourselves and teach us about you as we celebrate you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.